From CPR News in Colorado Springs, this is Colorado Matters. Russia invaded Ukraine six months ago today. We'll get context on where things stand with the World Affairs Council here in the Springs. Putin appears to believe that within a year or two, war weariness will lead to a collapse of political will in Ukraine and in the West, and that we will accept whatever settlement he wants to propose. The Russian military operations continue to violate the laws of land warfare, principles that are there to protect both civilians and even combatants. If Ukrainian military and Ukrainian people didn't stop Russian military and Russia managed to prevail in Ukraine, then why would Russia stop? It is not possible to exaggerate the importance of American leadership in this whole enterprise. I'm J.C. Futrell, and we donated our car to Colorado Public Radio. My family and I love CPR. That's where we get our news, our entertainment, and we love the local stories. It's been a dream of ours for years to be able to donate a car. We uh, totally recommend it for anyone else to do. It took just a few days between submitting online and having the tow guy come and take our vehicle away. It's easy to donate your car at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner in Colorado Springs. Russia invaded Ukraine six months ago today, and a war many thought would last only days rages on. The World Affairs Council here in the Springs recently assembled some experts to offer context. CPR's Dan Boyce moderated the discussion. We'll begin, though, by hearing individually from each of our panelists. First up, Ray Raymond, longtime British diplomat and instructor at West Point. He'll speak to what the world has learned about Russian President Vladimir Putin six months into the war. I am a diplomatic veteran of the first Cold War when there were ground rules and guardrails that the West and the Soviet Union observed. Today, as I look at Putin's barbarous and unprovoked invasion of Ukraine, I see a second Cold War already underway with no ground rules or guardrails, and that frightens me. Today, we have to deal with a Russian leader who is a ruthless mafia godfather, who governs Russia with an iron fist, who crushes dissent, who murders or imprisons those who impose him, and who breaks the law, Russian or international, at will whenever it suits him. He has restructured the Russian government along with the authoritarian lines of his beloved KGB to produce a tyrannical, and some might say a warmongering state. Now, that is all true, but at the same time, in international affairs, we have come to think of Putin as a careful, calculating, skillful tactician who shrewdly calculates the risks of all his actions. So, question. How do we explain, how do we understand, how do we explain Putin's recent behavior? One school of thought, of course, is that he's gone mad, become an unhinged lunatic. I don't buy that. Putin is normally a shrewd and tactical thinker, but he is seriously miscalculated. And that I do buy. Putin has miscalculated and misunderstood again and again. He misread political reality in Ukraine. He underestimated Vladimir Zelensky. He underestimated the Ukrainian army's capability, 
skill and fierce determination to resist. He misread the Ukrainian people's fierce spirit to resist Russian aggression. And, and he miscalculated the strength, the cohesion, and the determination of NATO to resist. Now, there's another school of thought which I think also captures some part of the truth. And it suggests that what's been driving Putin over the past 10 years or so has been a rabid Russian nationalism supported by a kind of politico-religious theology which manifests itself internationally as a virulent form of Russian imperialism. Putin is obsessed with restoring the old czarist empire and he sees us as the enemy determined to stop him. But why is he doing this now? Why has he been doing this over the past six months? The short answer is I think Putin thought he could get away with it. Now at the beginning of the Russian invasion, Putin's goal was clear, wasn't it? Regime change. Topple President Zelensky's democratically elected government and install a puppet regime subservient to the Kremlin. Well, now that the Russian invasion has become bogged down in a slow, grinding war of attrition, the Pentagon estimates that Putin may have lost somewhere between 70 and 80,000 troops, either dead or wounded, along with billions of rubles worth of tanks, trucks, aircraft, and other equipment. Despite these horrific losses, Putin, bizarrely, at least to some, seems to think he's winning, that he's winning now and he can win over the longer term. Why? Why is he thinking this? I think there are four reasons. First, Putin appears to believe that the US, the UK, and other NATO allies are near the limit of the number of high-grade weapons we can give Ukraine and that we will not provide them with enough equipment to defeat Russia militarily on the battlefield. Second, Putin appears to believe that within a year or two, war weariness will lead to a collapse of political will in Ukraine and in the West, and that we will accept whatever settlement he wants to propose. Third, Putin appears to believe that time is on his side, that politically, within a few years, right-wing populism, the kind of disease that's afflicted the West, right-wing populism will triumph in countries like France or the United States, and that these new leaders will agree to overturn Europe's Cold War security architecture, including, of course, reversing NATO expansion. Finally on this, remember, Putin has nuclear weapons, lots of them, and has threatened to use them. Will he? Who knows? But I do need to remind everyone here today and listening on the radio that the second decree that Putin signed as president abandoned Boris Yeltsin's no first use policy. Instead, Putin's policy emphasizes the right to use nuclear weapons against aggressors if he determines peaceful methods are ineffective. In the end, there will have to be some sort of diplomatic settlement. No one knows exactly what it might look like. But I will say this, there must be no more Munichs, both in terms of appeasing dictators or Western powers arrogating to themselves the right to negotiate the fate of smaller nations without their presence at the negotiating table. The extraordinary people of Ukraine 
do not deserve this. Their proud, independent voice must be heard in the halls of diplomacy as it has been heard on the battlefield. We owe them that and much, much, much more. Ray Raymond, longtime British diplomat and instructor at West Point, he's one of the experts on a panel for the Colorado Springs World Affairs Council. Next, Carl Schneider. He's a retired Army Special Forces officer. During his two decades of service, he worked in NATO's High Readiness Force Headquarters in Istanbul, Turkey. Schneider starts by assessing the ground war. It has become abundantly clear that Russia's military should not be rated number two by such sources as global firepower. It certainly should not be rated close behind as second to the United States. Based on my experience in observing them today and their efforts, they are akin to some of the developing countries with which I worked decades ago. Perhaps in a nuclear capability, but certainly not conventionally. It's clear that their budgetary spend in 2020 of over $61 billion mostly fell into oblivion due to the rampant corruption in Russia and specifically the military. Their tanks have proven to have fatal flaws in their design and not to mention how they are operated and their military formations leadership both tactically, operationally, if not strategically. They are still poorly led and from the lowest ranking soldier up to President Putin himself have committed many war crimes. This we know as they have already been convictions in the International Criminal Court and the Ukrainians and other international organizations are documenting those atrocities that will indeed lead to future trials and convictions of Russian military leaders, if not Putin himself, which it should be. I posit that the Russian military operations continue to violate the laws of land warfare, the four basic principles that are internationally known and followed by the majority of the world. Principles that are there to protect both civilians and even combatants. But let's examine those because I think it's very worthwhile to understand those as we assess what Vladimir Putin is doing. First, the Russian military does not distinguish between the civilian population, combatants, and between civilian objects and military objectives, and that they purposely direct their operations against military targets and civilian targets alike. We have seen the bombings of schools, theaters loaded with civilians, and one theater that was indeed marked as civilian. Even hospitals and the wanton killing of civilians as they walk along the streets. Second, the Russian military consistently and deliberately violates the principle of proportionality, where the loss of life and damage to property incidental to attacks must not be excessive in relation to the concrete and direct military objectives. We have seen cities and ports bombed into oblivion. Third, the principle of a military necessity means injury done to the enemy must only be absolutely necessary. Everything beyond that is criminal. The documented wounding and permanently injuring of opponents, the torture and murder of military service members and civilians constitutes war crimes. Also, combatants should not employ weapons or projectiles and materials and methods of warfare of nature to cause superfluous injury or unnecessary suffering. Ukraine's ambassador to the U.S. has accused Russia of using thermobaric weapons or vacuum bombs. Vacuum bombs disperse fuel that mixes with oxygen and a second kicker charge detonates the fuel cloud. The overpressure of the blast creates disruptions in the air spaces in the body's lungs, ears, and intestines. The Russian military and its leadership without reservation have and are failing in their duty to abide by the law of land warfare. 
The West has been very generous in arming the Ukrainian military with a multitude of Javelin missiles that have proven extremely effective against Russian armor. The U.S. has sent high-mobility artillery rocket systems, or HIMARS, multiple rocket launchers, which allow the Ukrainian forces to hit deeper behind Russian lines while staying out of range of Russian military. The United States has also sent 155mm howitzers, hundreds of Phoenix Ghost tactical drones, and much more. Turkey, another NATO ally, has sent the Bayraktar TB2 combat drones, and this drone was instrumental in the sinking of the Moskva warship as it provided a feint in that operation. The United Kingdom has sent armored vehicles, anti-tank missiles, air defense systems, and multiple tons of explosives. Canada, Germany, Spain, France, the Nordic countries, and many of Ukraine's closest neighbors like Poland have been actively supplying Ukraine with all manner of weapon systems. Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia have also sent military support. More disconcerting, though, on the opposite side of armed supplies, North Korea recently pledged to send 100,000 troops in support of Russia. It seems that the conflict indeed is expanding beyond Ukraine and Europe. The ground slog of conventional combat has led to what we have recently seen as combat actions close to the Russian border and what we are seeing now occurring in the Crimea, a transition, I think, to guerrilla warfare. Currently, guerrilla warfare is being implemented today by the Ukrainian forces, clearly. We see it in the form of assassinations of generals. I would call that not an assassination. I would call those military officers a legitimate military target. We see sabotage. We see this in attacks in Crimea in the past week, the attacks on military bases and infrastructure. Just recently, the U.S. official position is that they are okay with it, and that is considered an escalation. Furthermore, I'd like to see Ukraine take the fight deep in Russia. I think then they would have an impact on the political will of Putin, but more so the people of Russia. I suggest that such bold action would be effective in changing the dynamics of the conflict rather quickly. Carl Schneider, retired Army Special Forces officer, who's part of this roundtable for the World Affairs Council here in Colorado Springs. Eden Moikich is an associate professor of national security and foreign policy at UCCS. He also worked at the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe and for NATO in his native Bosnia and Herzegovina. He shed light on how the war impacts other countries in the region. The invasion of Ukraine by Russia put many of these Eastern and Central European countries on a high alert, much more than countries in the West like France, UK, etc. The war is much closer. The military help that is going on, that is coming from the Western countries, NATO countries, we have to take into consideration that Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Slovakia, North Macedonia, Slovenia donated a huge amount of military help from their stockpiles which considering the size of those countries, in many cases, the population of half of the Denver (laughs) population, it's very significant. And the reason for that is that those countries are some way familiar with what war means, much more so than in in the West, and uh, war is much closer to them. While many of those countries are NATO countries and they are protected by Article 5, there are several of them that are truly scared of of what's going on in Ukraine. Georgia, Moldova, Kosovo, Bosnia and Herzegovina, and two NATO countries, Montenegro and North Macedonia, are specifically in very, I would say, dire political situation because of meddling by Russian intelligence, by Serbian intelligence, etc., etc. Georgia and Moldova are geographically the closest to Ukraine and the Russia, and they have uh, actually Russian troops in their territory. We often 
neglect to mention that Moldova has a Russian brigade in the region called Transistria, and of course they are scared to death of what's right now going on in Ukraine. Um, if my opinion is is that if Ukrainian military and Ukrainian people didn't stop Russian military and Russia managed to prevail in Ukraine, the next country is a Moldova. And, and I, I just don't see how, why would Russia stop at the Ukrainian-Moldovan border. Uh, Georgia, on the other hand, we remember in 2008, Russia invaded South Ossetia region, they're present there. And of course, both countries are having a stake in this war. The really big problem is the Balkans, which is kind of on a periphery of what's happening right now. The reason for that is that the Russians have a true ally in the Balkans, and that is the Serbia. Uh, Serbia is the only European country that maintains civil, civilian flights with the Moscow on a regular basis. Belgrade became, a, I would say, a hot spot for the affluent Russians to escape Moscow. And the regime of the Alexander Vucic is doing uh, everything to push Russian interest over there. Serbian intelligence is openly interfering in the internal political affairs of Montenegro, which is a NATO country. Um, the two countries actually that are most vulnerable to this are Kosovo and Bosnia. Both countries are not members of NATO and EU, and both countries are heavily influenced by Serbia on one hand, while in Bosnian case, the pressure on internal politics comes from also Croatia, which is NATO member. The Croatian president is openly pro-Russian, openly questions uh, sanctions against Russia. So the lesson here, I think the message here is that, yes, Ukraine is the focus, yes, Ukraine is the priority, but there are hotspots around Europe that can actually, that are flaring and can um, uh, caught up fire if we don't focus on them, send them help, and, and try to stabilize their internal affairs and uh, somehow get them into NATO and at least partially into EU, open the market, European market or something like that. Eden Moikic, Associate Professor of National Security and Foreign Policy at UCCS. The fourth voice on this panel, gathered by the World Affairs Council, is Sky Forrester. He's Professor Emeritus at the Air Force Academy here in Colorado Springs, where he also graduated. Forrester served as a senior advisor in security and arms control policy for the Air Force. His initial remarks are about the Western response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The most significant development in the five months since we last met is that Finland and Sweden are joining NATO. And I want you to understand the significance of this. For Sweden, remember Sweden up until the beginning of the 19th century had an empire that extended throughout much of Europe, but they lost a war with Russia as part of the Napoleonic Wars. They had to give up Finland because that used to be part of Sweden. They gave it up to Russia. But since that time in 1809, they have had an official policy of neutrality and restated after World War II that they were going to be neutral in peace and hopefully remain neutral in war. That 200-year tradition is over. And the Swedish foreign minister cited the fundamental change in the European security environment demanding this step. And public opinion in both Sweden and Poland, which a year ago was ambivalent about joining NATO, uh, just skyrocketed in favor of joining NATO. Finland, which became part of the Russian Empire in, in 1809, 
And then in uh, 1940, uh, they had a winter war with Russia, gave the, or the Soviet Union, gave the Soviet army a bloody nose, but they had to give up a little territory to them. And after World War II, signed a Cold War treaty with Russia that said they would not join any bloc that was hostile to the USSR. Um, well, the USSR no longer exists, so I guess that we can forget about that. Uh, and Russia certainly hasn't kept this part of the deal. But this neutrality is important because we think of them, oh, okay, well, they're part of the European Union. But neither of them joined the European Union during the Cold War because neutrality extended to that as well. Uh, so they have tried to play this balancing act in the middle of Europe, in the middle of Northern Europe. Uh, and so I don't want you to, no one should underestimate the significance of this politically for them as well as the military significance for NATO. Uh, NATO formally approved their membership at the Madrid summit at the end of June, and a couple weeks ago, the United States Senate ratified that treaty because each parliament in NATO has to do it, and it has to be a consensus, which means every single NATO, all 30 NATO countries, have to agree. Turkey will hold out to the end, hoping that we will buy the rug twice. Uh, but they will come around. There are seven left to ratify it. The U.S. is the most recent, being number 23. But I think the bipartisanship in that ratification vote is equally stunning because there were a lot of people suggesting that, well, they're part of the Republican Party is not going to go along with that. Also at that Madrid summit, NATO adopted a new strategic concept. And the backdrop of that, when you read that document, is Russia's war of aggression in Ukraine. That's in quotes. NATO agreed in that meeting in the Madrid summit that it would provide a lot of non-lethal support for Ukraine. The lethal support, i.e. the weapons, uh, that's coming from NATO individual member countries, not coming from NATO. But this was also a NATO package of support. Also at that summit, they increased deployments to NATO's eastern flank states that now run from the Baltic states uh, and now Finland, but they're not in yet, of uh, the Baltic states all the way down to Bulgaria. And this is significant because up until 2014, NATO did very little. It wasn't focusing at all on defense of Europe. It was, oh, that's a Cold War concept. We're worried about terrorism, and piracy, and everything else. In 2015 and 16, NATO agreed a high readiness task force, and that envisioned a response force not necessarily in place in Europe, but ability rapidly to deploy of 45,000. That number just went to 300,000. Now, there's got to be a lot of infrastructure to be built before they can handle all that, but that's also going to be part of the NATO budget, whether it's infrastructure, prepositioning of equipment and supplies, and a continued rotation of troops through all of these countries at a much significant level. And in case you had noticed, U.S. military presence in Europe has grown 50% in the last few years, and particularly this year. We are now approaching 100,000 U.S. troops in Europe. So we have a substantial military increase. Now, from the beginning, NATO has walked a fine line in this conflict, trying to show firm support for Ukraine, but not provoking Russia into expanding that conflict. This is a very delicate policy balancing act, is what I want you to understand. But Western weaponry has enabled Ukraine to stop the Russian advances, create a long war of attrition, and redirect Moscow's aims from Kiev down to the east, consolidating the east and creating a land bridge to the south to Crimea. 
But here's the big question, and this is what I really want you to focus on. It's one thing to ensure that Russia does not win this war in the way that Putin wanted to win it in February. It's one thing to say Russia cannot win, Ukraine cannot be allowed to lose. It's another thing to commit to the reverse, to support Ukraine winning and Russia losing. Because win, according to Zelensky, is I'm not giving up a single person or a square centimeter of territory. He wants to take back, and we would like, theoretically, to see him take back all of the territory that they've lost since 2014. Donetsk, Luhansk, Crimea, and all the rest. How you do that, in the immortal words of the Wizard of Oz, is a horse of a different color. Would NATO be willing to support a counteroffensive that involves a whole step function increase in military support? Would they be willing to support a counteroffensive that would regain that territory from the Russian military, kick the Russian military out of Ukraine, which would probably require being able to strike targets in Russia? And NATO has begun to think about that, but it doesn't really want to think about it very much, and there is no clear answer. And the key allies here, and by that I mean the French, the Germans, the British, as well as the United States, may not be of one mind in this question. My final point, it is not possible to exaggerate the importance of American leadership in this whole enterprise. Every ally that I've spoken with ever has made clear that American commitment to NATO is the reason for NATO, and that without the U.S. and NATO, NATO has no real glue anymore. The U.S. has stood firm in this administration. There's strong bipartisan support in the Senate, but not necessarily in the Republican Party or even in the extremes of the Democratic Party. Under Trump, the Allies were genuinely worried about U.S. disengagement. They're very glad to have U.S. strong leadership now, but they wonder about 2024. They wonder whether this is a sustainable commitment. Was Donald Trump the anomaly, or is Joe Biden now the anomaly? Meantime, Mr. Putin may think if he can wait it out until past 2024, either as a frozen conflict or just as a steady war of attrition, that he actually could win this thing. And that may be his long view of victory. Sky Forrester, a U.S. Air Force veteran who's worked in security and arms control policy. He's a visiting professor here at Colorado College. Russia invaded Ukraine six months ago. To get a read on the war, the Colorado Springs World Affairs Council assembled a panel of experts here at the Southern Colorado Public Media Center. CPR's Dan Boyce moderated the discussion. We've all been reminded throughout this crisis that Ukraine really is one of the most important breadbaskets in the entire world. They are extraordinarily productive, and yet much of their grain, some of it has not been harvested at all, or it's been left to rot under Russian blockade, although you know that blockade has opened to some degree in the last month. Uh, regardless, still, many poor nations, including particularly in North Africa and the Middle East, are really reliant upon Ukrainian grains. So Dr. Forrester, I will start with you. What is the danger of true famine this fall? Essentially, the poorest countries in the world are almost entirely reliant on imports of grain 
from Russia and Ukraine. And that includes much of Africa, but other parts of the Middle East and, and Latin America as well. And in some cases, there are stores. Um, the U.S. and European Union, uh, others are doing what they can to fill in some of that shortage, but it's going to be very severe in countries that already, as the UN Food Program has pointed out, is already struggling with drought and famine even before we got to this. So it's a very real danger. And it's destabilizing, the potential for something really destabilizing. And if I were to really try to extrapolate a worst case scenario, particularly in North Africa, say there is some degree of famine that leads to a certain level of outmigration from Africa into Europe. Say that happens this winter at the same time that you have these problems with energy in countries like Germany. So, uh, Dr. Raymond, to what degree may Vladimir Putin be uh, relying on the destabilizing chaos of all this as part of his long-term strategy? He may well be. But on the other hand, he also has to look out for Russian national interests, as he has done in uh, agreeing to the deal that was that was brokered, of course, by the Turks and by the United Nations. Um, keep in mind also that Russia is in a competition for influence in Africa with China and with the West. Um, so he will he will play his cards on that issue quite carefully. He's not as emotionally driven on this as he was on the case of Ukraine. But I think I, I agree with uh, Dr. Forrester that the risk of famine is very serious. But I think that if Putin really wanted to exploit it in the way that you're suggesting, which is entirely plausible, of course, he would not have entered into the agreement with Ukraine brokered by the UN and by, and by Turkey. To this issue, I thought it was so interesting when you mentioned uh, war weariness domestically. So early on, of course, we all remember the sentiment in the United States just seemed to be overwhelmingly on the Ukrainian side. But in the month since, it's really gotten more complicated. And my personal anecdote that I use for this is, you know, as part of my job, I really try to keep up with ideological political influencers broadly across a broad spectrum on social media, say on YouTube and the like. And what I notice is, say, a couple months into the war in Ukraine, I, I started seeing some of the conservative influencers I follow. It, it was like they're just kind of dropping in this skepticism about the war in Ukraine. And now a few months after that, what you see pretty commonly is that saying I stand with Ukraine is actually almost used as a meme to mock progressives. And, you know, I want to try to be as genuine as possible in interpreting the critique they have. And, and I think that those conservatives would say that, you know, an American putting a Ukrainian flag outside their house or a sticker on their car, at this point, it smacks of a certain kind of bandwagon virtue signaling that they associate with the left. And whether or not you agree with that, I think it's a, it's a cogent argument. But when you talked about uh, when we when we were speaking about the war weariness, like I couldn't help wondering if there was something more strategic behind that kind of thing. And Carl, so you are also the vice chair of the El Paso GOP. Am I being too cynical in suggesting that ridiculing support for Ukraine could be part of a wider political strategy? Not at all. I think that... Um you know, that strategy, you know, goes back to the, when uh, 
Trump was running and the Russia, Russia, Russia and so on and discounting that topic in any way, shape or form, it lends itself to a kinship of ideology. And how, how, do, I, how do I phrase that? Um, you know, anyone who discounts what's going on in Russia and Ukraine, anyone who discounts the struggle that is going on on the part of the Ukrainians, I, I think they're kind of of the same mind as Putin and Russia, meaning they lean towards a more autocratic way of thinking. And they are pushing that because that's who they are and what they're about. You find that far right fringe of the Republican Party is leaning towards, and quite scarily so, a more autocratic form of ideology, meaning the ends justify the means, whether it's uh, complaining and talking about uh, Dominion voting machines or any other type of thing that has no factual basis whatsoever, it, it's, it's, it's pretty scary. And so, and I just wonder that this idea that in relation to that idea of war weariness and Vladimir Putin's hope or expectation that that could be his path to victory. Well, you know, veteran of 22 years in the military, been to combat, uh, there is battle fatigue. There is war weariness. People are tired of it. I mean, it is a slug fest every day. And, you know, I think people may get tired of those things rather quickly, which is, which is in and of itself scary that we don't have as a culture, as a people, the stamina to stick things out when they really need to be stuck out. And that bodes to the quality and character of some in our population where they just don't have the stamina or the, the grit to endure. And that's disconcerting. No, I was just going to add, and I, I, I agree with my uh, good friend Carl, very respectfully, ladies and gentlemen, from an allied perspective, there's always been a great deal of worry that the United States lacks strategic patience, the American public lacks strategic patience, and lacks strategic grit. One quick example, between 1946 and 1960, Britain engaged in a counterinsurgency in Malaya, which we won, by the way, but it took 14 years. There was no element of British society calling, oh, bring the troops home, bring the troops home. There's been an historic pattern over the past 100 years or so of, okay, if we have to do it, let's get in, let's do it quickly, let's get out. Sorry, folks, that's not how the real world works. I will caveat make one other comment that we as a nation have really just come out of a 20-year long period of conflict so that people may not have the grit today. It's somewhat, I think, potentially understandable in that manner. However, the political side of things, we'll retouch on that, uh, it bodes to a ilk within my own party that is, has a desire to create an autocracy, plain and simple. And we can't let that happen. Carl Schneider, a retired Army Special Forces officer and combat veteran. He's also the vice chair of the El Paso County GOP. We also heard from Ray Raymond, longtime British diplomat and instructor at West Point. CPR Southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce moderated for the World Affairs Council here in the Springs. He asked about parallels between Russia and Ukraine and China and Taiwan before taking questions from the audience. 
Well, I think we should always be watching Taiwan. Um, Certainly members of Congress are watching it up close and personal at this point. Um, I'm not not worried that China is – I'm not worried. I am concerned always that China will decide it has to resort to force over Taiwan. Uh, In the first place, the prospect of Chinese victory in a military – conquest, if you will, occupation of Taiwan, um, that's a much harder proposition than what Russia was seeking to do. Um, And so if I were Xi Jinping, I would be saying, hmm, this may not be as easy as I thought. Um, And the West has demonstrated itself to be rather firm on all of this. That doesn't say we shouldn't be concerned. We need to watch this balancing act very carefully. Uh, We are not beating the drum for Taiwanese independence. Uh, We, in fact, caution the Taiwanese government not to beat that drum loudly either. And both Taiwan and China have economic interests at stake that would be shattered if they were to go to war. So concern, yes. Alarm, no. Sky, can I just build on that excellent point? I would remind everybody of four simple letters. T-S-M-C. It is the name of the biggest and the most powerful chip and advanced chip manufacturer in the world. It's based in, you guessed it, Taiwan. And it is so integrated with the Chinese economy. As Sky very rightly pointed out, there would be vital Chinese interests destroyed in, 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 that, in that process. And the damage to the rest of the global economy would be huge. Uh, so uh, the Chinese will be very cognizant of the fact um, that TSMC are the most important global chip manufacturer in the world. You don't uh, – what's the old phrase? You don't kill the, the, the goose that lays the golden eggs. Um, Russia, Russia is a poor country. Russia is a poor country. Uh, there is this perception of Russia as a superpower which – I don't know why people are still calling them a superpower. They're a nuclear power. But they're a poor country before the war. They were ranked 167th in a healthcare. I can give you examples of several third world countries that we consider absolutely undeveloped that actually rank better than Russia. Uh, China is not. China is not a poor country. So there is a lot for China to lose, as Dr. Raymond and as Dr. Forrester mentioned, here. They are too integrated in the world economy. And um, most importantly, Chinese people don't want to go back to ride a bikes, except for fun. So, so t- t- Taiwan might be attractive, but consequences of that are much more significant. For Russia, Russians are really good in suffering. And, um, and <laughs> I must say that way. <laughs> And, uh, ex, uh, you know, the, the rich Russians, rich Russians, wealthy Russians, they are already gone. And that uh, pressure cooker uh, suddenly has a little bit less pressure inside Russia. You know? They went to du- Belgrade, to Dubai, to places where they can do business and stuff like that. Poor people stayed in Russia. And, and that, that, that pressure is going to take some time before we build that pressure back in Russia. Uh, China, I, I, if something with Taiwan happens... I, I don't know how that, and internally in China, that's where the problem, I think, is. Will Scott, I live here in Colorado Springs. Two uh, issues that didn't get much attention so far, sanctions. What's been the effect of all the sanctions that have been in place 
The second one is nuclear weapons. I mean, the embarrassing show that Russia's put on so far. I mean, one of the worrisome things to me is that at some point, Putin may elect to go with a tactical nuclear weapon. For instance, he could nuke Kiev. If he does that, what's the likelihood he's going to do that? And if he does it, what are we going to do? The short answer on the sanctions one is that Russia is a poor country as an aggregate country, but the regime is rich. It gets a lot of money from oil and gas, and the Chinese are buying all the oil and gas that they want. Uh, so that market is still flowing, uh, even if the price of oil has gone down some. And, of course, Putin he keeps telling the Russian people that this is a great moral, religious crusade and that, of course, the Russian people have to suffer, but you're good at it and we know you will be fine. Um, so that, I think, is his way of handling that. Um, on the nuclear weapons question, I think fundamentally Vladimir Putin understands that if the war becomes a nuclear war, he loses the most important thing to him, which is his regime. And I think when he was throwing that rhetoric around initially and he got some very strong pushback and I'm, I would be shocked if there weren't also a heavy stream of private messages, make sure you understand the consequences of what you're talking about. Um, so the rhetoric can fly a little bit. Uh, now, I do worry about, you know, the, but th this really comes up now in the context if Russia looked like it was going to lose-lose in a military sense. And so I think... There will be, if there is NATO support for a counteroffensive, it's going to be very, very granular. It's going to be very, very moderated. It's going to be very carefully done in a way that always provides an off-ramp for Russia in all of this, some kind of negotiated face-saving thing so that they don't find themselves as a bear-cornered in desperation. It's possibility, but it's one that I don't think is high probability unless it's a dire circumstance in part in Putin's view. For the sanctions, it, it does hurt. It, it's going to hurt poor people. They're also in this only six months, same like us. And yes, they export oil to China, but they don't export oil and gas as at the price that they would really like because Chinese now have a bargaining chip and says, okay, well, you cannot sell it there, but you have to sell it to us. So it's going to have an effect, but, I mean, we are we live in a second-day culture, second-day delivery culture, so we want immediate effects. It's going to take a few years, it's, it's going to, or, or even more than that. What, what really worries me when it comes to nuclear issues is that if Putin gets cornered and then decides to de deploy tactical nuclear weapons just as a show of force, just to scare someone, and then somewhere in that miscalculation and mistake happens, that, that's actually where I see a problem. I highly doubt Putin is suicidal, but this scenario can be a problematic where he's going to deploy tactical nuclear weapons and then someone is going to make somewhere some mistake and that can lead to, to catastrophe. I would agree with Ed and ref reference that, that a mistake made on the battlefield could escalate things way out of control. My concern about nuclear has to do with the power plants yeah. that we see under constant attack and struggles between the Ukrainian and Russian forces. That, it, as I mentioned earlier, the leadership of the military is non-existent. They don't have two cents to rub together. So dropping mortar rounds, artillery rounds, or attacking a nuclear facility is not going to really resonate with them. We saw that when they occupied Chernobyl. They were digging holes. They were spewing up the dust. And you had Russian soldiers taking artifacts home as souvenirs. 
that is my big concern because that type of nuclear disaster will have a longer lasting effect than, say, a tactical detonation. Can I just agree with all of my colleagues and everything that they've said? Um, can I just also flag up that the nuclear power plant that has been attacked is the biggest in Europe. But by the way, the victims, if anything was to, uh, shall we say, blow up, uh, the winds blow from uh, west to east, and the biggest victims would be in Russia. But while I agree totally with my good friend and colleague, uh, Dr. S Dr. Forrester, I would say that I also agree with Dr. Mushik and with the Colonel that there is still a risk of one or more tactical nuclear weapons being used, uh, but tactical only, in Ukraine only. Uh, Putin is not suicidal. Nancy Wilson, Manitou Springs. We haven't heard anything, or I haven't heard anything, about social media in this war that was so predominant. If you look at Myanmar or Egypt, or social media played such a powerful role in those circumstances. I'm just wondering, I hate to narrow it, but if anybody's heard anything about the role of social media in this war, other than here in the United States, and, and I think You've referred to that generally, but is it is it playing an important role that you're aware of? Russia proved disastrously bad at that. Reason for that is that their propaganda is very centralized, and governments are generally really bad in trying to pursue, especially young people. You know, there's this combativeness of young people to our government, et cetera, you know. So, so they're pro while that worked in meddling in elections, once when U West had unified response to the Russia, once when, particularly when Ukrainians figured out that they have to decentralize propaganda, when they, uh, common Ukrainians started to work for their cause, it became so obvious that Russian propaganda is strictly government propaganda. So um, they're really failing at that. Regardless that Russia Today, RT, and even Ministry of Defense and a Ministry of Foreign Affairs, I mean, they all have access to the Twitter. Twitter didn't block them. Western government didn't block their access to Twitter. Uh, they still spewing propaganda on a Twitter, but it's not working. It's really not working. When you see the amount of comment, comments, uh, retweets, et cetera, et cetera, it's minuscule compared, for example, how Ukrainians are doing that. Rusty Stevens, Colorado Springs. In the eventual post-Putin Russia, what's the best way forward for Western leaders, or at least waypoints forward, to best work with Russia? I'll say it that way. I think when Russia becomes a normal democratic state, then all things are possible. And we've had an example of this. In the 90s, under Boris Yeltsin, cooperation was possible. Kozirev, the then Russian foreign minister, was practically a NATO foreign minister. He, he was certainly treated as such. So if Russia, we have the experience of the 90s, that if Russia becomes a normal democratic state, then all things are possible. Then you can talk about a new European security architecture, by all means, but not until Russia ceases to be an autocracy. And by the way, since I have the microphone, whoever becomes prime minister on the 1st of September, you will not see one 
iota of change in British policy towards Ukraine. Britain stands absolutely 100% loyally alongside the United States and alongside the forces of freedom, as we always do. A discussion about six months of war in Ukraine from the Colorado Springs World Affairs Council, moderated by CPR's Dan Boyce. Our thanks to the experts, Ray Raymond, Carl Schneider, Eden Moikic, and Sky Forrester. And special thanks to our own Pedro Lumbrano and Carl Bielek. I'm Ryan Warner in Colorado Springs. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.